Welcome to this episode of The Work, a podcast where we ask our guests tough questions about work and the future of work. Today, our guest is Mimi Brooks, founder and CEO of Logical Design Solutions. Mimi is one of the industry's most brilliant strategists, especially in digital business. Mimi, welcome to The Work. Will you please introduce yourself to our listeners? Jean, thank you so much. I'm so delighted to be here. I'm Mimi Brooks. As you said, I'm the CEO of Logical Design Solutions, LDS, and we're a management consultancy and we work with large global enterprises on their digital to organizational transformation strategies. So, um, so I'm delighted to be here. The world of work is obviously uh, an epicenter of, um, of our study and, um, and our consulting. So thank you so much, Jean. So I think a lot of people get confused in terms of where the edges are of where you come into the picture and potentially where you do a handoff to other resources. Can you help our listeners understand that? It's a great question. Um, So we tend to get hired um, after the business strategy, the marketplace business strategy has been established. So all the major consultancies that you would know of on the front end of you know, business model design tend to be in front of us. So then we come in after the business marketplace strategy is done and we ask, how will the organization deliver you know, on these business strategies? What organizational capabilities are needed that they don't have today? How will systems and structures change? You know, autonomous teams, now that we're all in a remote work environment, leadership, now that we're in the inverted pyramid model. You know, so how do we think about the designs of organizations going forward? And then how can we create worker experiences, employee and worker experiences that help to be catalysts to those change. So we come in downstream from business model design and right at the point that the business is doing its operating model design and creating experiences for people. So I've heard the word change several times in all of that. Change is very scary for employees. It's very scary for the organizations they work for. John, um, your thoughts on change, especially as it relates to work. Well, I, I, you know, I, I love the um, idealism of the big consulting companies that work at the front end before you, before you get there. And um, I'm always astonished by how little of that actually reaches the sort of shop floor. Um, uh, and so change, I think, is... We've been talking about this in general, Gene. Change is something that executives get paid to to wrestle with. Um, um, But organizations don't necessarily do what their executives want them to be. So what I'm interested um, in hearing from Mimi is how you bridge that, right? It's like a transmission problem. You get the leadership all lined up, and then it still doesn't work because it's not connected adequately to the actual operational elements of the system. And so, so that's one of the ways that change is particularly difficult. And I'll leave that as a prompt for me, really. I, I really agree with that, John. I would say that, um, you know, the 
uh, the business models that we follow um, don't answer the how, right? They don't answer the how's the organization going to do that. Um, and while they have significant buy-in from the CEO um, and the top of the C-level suite, for sure, the gap is always in how we implement it, especially from an organizational change perspective. And, um, you know, we don't tend to come in, to your point, we don't tend to come in um, from leadership. Leadership tends to be something that we define after we've defined what the organization should be, you know, looking like and doing. Um, and a lot of it these days is focused on, you know, organizational capabilities that are needed. They're kind of entirely absent um, capabilities, John, as you can cross-functional teams, for example, you know, um, uh, organizational horizontal ideas like culture and ways of working. So a lot of the things that we focus on, you know, are the horizontal, you know, capabilities and bridges that don't exist in most, most large organizations because they're very siloed. They're either siloed by business unit or they're siloed by corporate function. And yet when we talk about, as you know, being a digital organization at our core, where it's a true competency of the organization, it's almost always described in horizontal context. And that's the weak structural idea in most organization designs. Not a lot of horizontals, too many verticals. I think- well, Let I, me, let yeah. me yeah. just uh, take that another step forward. Yeah. I hope we'll talk a little bit about Stuart Russell's great book, Human Compatible. And the, and the, the case that he makes is that Nobody sets objectives well. No, so so you end up with with something that you're going to um, have to deal with in your work, which is the objective, the very well defined objective, comes down to get horizontalized, sort of. And what you discover in the process of turning it into something practical is that you can't do what the original vision was. Uh, and so you must have to communicate that all the time. How, how do you do that? So um, I think that what we try to do, John's a great point, is to prioritize these enterprise common ideas that are horizontal. In other words, you know, we need to get a lot of consensus across business units and organizations about the things that they can all universally agree to as needed. So right off the bat, that shrinks your list of 35 things to a half a dozen things. You know, what are the things we can all agree to? That if we had this capability, this know-how, this horizontal system instantiated in the organization, it would be of high value to us, you know? And so I think the first thing that we do is we create a limited focus of the highest priority things that leadership across the board can agree is absent and needed, you know? And I think that when we do that, we move a lot of, you know, um, other priorities out of the way. Like, I'll just give you an example, John. We worked with um, uh, an energy company and there were probably 200 prioritized business initiatives that were digital at their core, digital business initiatives we got them down to six high priority initiatives, six that we could rally the organization around. And we had a very strong client in the CEO 
who was willing to stop doing a lot of things that were not going to be as important or as valuable as this. And those high priority initiatives, we call them their HPIs, their high priority initiatives were very gluey and they were said in very business terms, very much business terms, not technology terms, business terms. How do we, you know, We've lost me. Right? So we went across these big capability areas that were needed, you know, to for the company to be competing in a future digital world. And uh, and we got away from things that were either technology trying to find a business purpose or technology driven as a set of tools, you know, and so therefore we ended up with metrics and outcomes that the goals could be associated with. And then we rallied the organization around these core central areas. So um, it's got to be focused. People have to know what it is. They need to see what the organization's trying to do from a purpose perspective and then from an organizational and operational perspective. And, uh, you know, that's how we create these epicenters of digital um, activity, if you will. Well, you know, it sounds like you're helping people do a lot of difficult thinking you're facilitating some difficult thinking that perhaps they've been unable to tackle internally. I'm going to throw a wrench in the works. Um, How does that look when you start to introduce um, the, the intersection of humans and machines? You know, I heard John mention the shop floor earlier and, and he and I like to go there. You know, we like to like to remind our listeners that, not everyone's a knowledge worker sitting in front of a computer all day long. So, you know, how do you introduce those really what what probably feel like very threatening ideas like human and machine interaction? Well, you know, I'm really interested in your point of view on this too, John, because I think that, you know, Stuart's book that you talk about has some interesting lines of sight to this. So here's how we do it. Um So we put the humans in the organization first, you know, we ask the question, you know, um, how is uh, human work going to change, you know, with the benefit of uh, technology where we can bring predictive analytics into their line of thinking and their judgment, we can bring, you know, other um, analysis around trends and uh, likely outcomes, and we look at that as, you know, as complementing and in service to, you know, the human worker. So um, even though we see human machine um, enabled teams, we see them as human human teams benefiting from, you know, their technology tools and capabilities, increasingly more and more powerful, if you will, but in service to people in new work. Now, work changes, don't get me wrong. Of course, human work changes. And of course, routine tasks get automated, you know, but um, we don't really solve uh, organizational problems that are not human problems. Mm -hmm. We don't don't build uh, mechanized solutions that have no humans in them. (laughs) We only get hired, you know, when there's humans in the middle of the new uh, ecosystem and uh, digital, and this is where I think you get into Stuart's concepts. You know, digital is in service to you know people in new work. 
I, I buy I buy a lot of that. One of the things I I tend to think about the digital transformation initiatives in general is that they're sort of the last gasp for immortality of dying entities, um, and um, the the question that that that, that makes me ask is. How do you know and how do you build confidence in the fact that the things that you do that have very future orientation are right? Because what, the, what, what companies are trying to imagine is what market they should be in five years from now and how to be prepared to be in that market five years from now. And we just, we just did an interview with the scenario planning guy who made the persuasive point that you can't really tell what's going to happen in the future, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. But in order to run an organization, you have to commit resources and head off in a direction. So, so how do you shape, how do you shape that? I love the, that question. I really, I really do, John, um, because um, sometimes our clients ask us that direct directly, you know, how do you know that the recommendations that you might make here, you know, are really going to be, you know, what our future looks like. And um, what I try to say to that, John, you tell me what you think is that most of the time, our job is not to predict the future, um, but rather to make some big bets based on business strategy and help from leaders um, and to create momentum. You know, our job more than anything is momentum. So we say, if we can take the first couple of steps I'm not necessarily trying to predict the third step, but I think the organization is going to learn from the first two so that when we put our foot down the next time, we're going to put our foot down likely in a right place. Strategy, purpose is the wind at our back here, if you will. Strategy and purpose kind of propels us forward. Learning as a byproduct of our motion, of our momentum, you know, so that then we can make the right next step and the right next step. And, you know, a lot of times these business strategies, particularly with large organizations, are based on momentum and the resiliency that momentum provides, Mm -hmm. you know. So you have to like you have to almost, you know, get unstuck like in that the companies that we work with, the the agreement of focus areas, the things we want executives to buy into enables work to flow. So we so we unstick it so that we can have things we all can agree to. And then we learn as we walk in a very conscious idea of learning as we go, knowing, knowing that, you know, resiliency really is the, you know, the game that we win when we have momentum, lessons learned fast and course corrections that stay true to our strategy. I I think it looks like that when we're trying to walk the walk, which is the only way that we get hired is to walk the walk. I, you know, I think this, I have an image in my mind of a catapult, you know, that this momentum that enables me to get over the moat or whatever, you know, whatever the bad thing is. I'm wondering though, Mimi, with, with some, we're not totally over it yet, of course, but with some perspective of, of organizations that were resilient enough to continue momentum through COVID versus organizations that just, you know, uh, were were brought to their knees. Did you find any common threads? Do, did you observe anything in particular? Well, I did, and um, you know, I have to say that of all of the companies that we worked with, in in all sincerity, I found them all, 
you know, um, adapted and adapted relatively quickly. Not that it was pretty always and there wasn't pain points, but, you know, they eventually adapted some faster than others. Um, to me, the big ideas were people stepped up, uh, individual workers and employees stepped up much more capable than what we thought they would be, you know, in autonomous, you know, um, uh, uh, environments where they weren't being managed in whatever our version of command and control leadership mm -hmm. was, you know, um, people took the reins, um, they moved faster and clearer than what we might have expected them to, and they were highly productive leadership had to let go of the reins, trust their teams, mm -hmm. equip them with the digital capabilities they needed. It was, in my opinion, a big accelerator for leadership change. You know, I mean, if I had said to you prior to COVID that some of the, you know, objections we got were things like, John, we can't give our frontline, you know, mobile devices because they're not going to know what to do with them. Like, you're kidding me. The, the front line isn't using mobile devices like right. everybody else in the world. It just it, these were just bad ideas, you know. And uh, when we got into a situation where we had to, you know, get digital tools in the hands of people, expect them to figure out how to collaborate in teams that were decentralized, et cetera. You know, they did a really good job and uh, and leadership had to had to find its new role. And its new role really wasn't running shotgun over people or teams. It was trying to model what good looked like and to remove obstacles for the team, remove the team's obstacles so the team can move forward. So um, so those were the big things that, that, that I saw. It was kind of a beautiful thing, honestly. Yeah, no, I imagine it was. John, I'd love you to weigh in on leadership because, you know, we've talked previously about command and control models and um, and leadership also kind of being this quarter to quarter you know, sprint, and uh, and this has all been very different for everyone. It's 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 a really interesting thing, Jean, and um, I wonder, Mimi, it it sounds like one might redefine digital transformation as teaching leadership, existing leadership, how to run a little faster, um, and because there, are, I don't. I don't know any people at the bottom of organizations who are not digitally literate. Mostly they're impatient with the pace at which the company is becoming digital. And so this, this idea of a digital transformation strikes me as a nice way to put a fig leaf on the fact that it's the leadership that needs to make the digital transformation. Um, I think that's a great point. You know, John, I, I say it sometimes, at least just from from my vantage point in terms of my work, I'm not saying it applies to everybody, but my line of sight is, you know, marketplace change, operating model change, organizational transformation, organizational systems and structures, that's where leadership would fit, would fit, and the design of organizational processes and capabilities, including what workers of the future need. So I think leadership is key. And then, you know, John, the other piece that I would put with that, you tell me what you think is, um, is uh, I don't find workers averse to adopting and using digital tools. What I find them uh, more than anything is confused about how the company sees their work changing going forward and how they should be competitive, you know, in that new model. They are looking for answers in that regard. Tell me how you think automation is going to change my work. 
How do I need to be successful here? What's really expected of me? How are you going to help me? How can I help myself? You know, and I think they want those answers and a vision of what the future of work means to them, you know, without having to guess about, you know, how much of their job is going to get automated. Like, tell it to me from the organizational design perspective. How do you see our work in the future state organization? You know, and how can we, you know, ready ourselves for that? So it looks like that to me. Wonder, uh, I've been listening to people talking about skills becoming the new job sort of, sort of things. And, and that one, one way of thinking about the future of work is that you have a portfolio of skills. The company has a portfolio of skills. The individual has a portfolio of skills. And then, then recently I've been wondering, how in the world do you actually manage that? Right. It's a great theory about cascading skills, but the, but the question of if I am a section head and I've got 20 people working for me, do I somehow reach into a bucket and figure out what the skills are, or do I do what I've always done, which is make sure they each have a job and that I know what I can rely on them to do. And so there seems to be, like a lot of things, confusion about these great ideas from the top down to where they get get implemented, and I, I know that's where you work. So, so uh... it's a great point. Um, I think that uh, I think that rigid job descriptions that are you know finite and um, you know highly prescribed um, are going to give way to you know more fluid job descriptions based on the types of problems that we think people can solve. You know, of course, there'd be skills associated with them, but, you know, it's more what types of problems are you good at? Um, if I was going to create a team, how would I look at you as a problem solver on that team? Because I want diverse problem solving to get the best outcome here. So um, I think that if we can think about, you know, the problems that people are both interested in and do a good job in solving, and sometimes that can be, you know, a wide way of thinking about people's skills. You know, it's not necessarily what they had their degree in or what their title is or whatever. I think people are a bit more capable than that. And so if we can open up that to be, you know, more of a, pro a sphere of influence and problem solving, and then we try to combine them with people, you know, whose uh, diversity would enable a one plus one equals three idea in terms of outcomes. We don't put everybody together that's the same. We put people that are going to likely come at the problem from different vantage points. You know, I think that that creates better organizational scale. And then I can deconstruct those teams and reconstruct them on the fly, you know, based on, you know, the changing nature of problems that I'm trying to solve. So I think people and capabilities, you know, need to be kind of fluid so that we can construct and deconstruct teams quickly as we need to. And uh, I think this is where you see diversity is such an important part of, you know, new organizational constructs is then I have a diverse group of people to pull from bound together, you know, in common culture and common ways of working um, that um, they can be quite successful, you know, with some um, leadership that moves obstacles out of the way. And this fluid organization kind of emerges, if you will. 
So I know we're we're almost at time. So I'm hearing change. I'm hearing communication. I'm hearing leadership a lot. So um, uh, clearly, Mimi, you're at the crossroads of some pretty exciting work. Um, John, any closing thoughts for Mimi? Well, I wish we had another hour or so. Oh, we'll, um, we'll book that in the future. <laughs> <laughs> this this was a good running start, um, and and maybe the best excuse that that I've seen so far for making these hour-long conversations. Um, just so thanks, Mimi. It was great to get to know you a little bit. It was really my pleasure, John. I, I, uh, I feel like I should have known you all along. So uh, I'm really pleased to, uh, to meet you and uh, to have this conversation. Maybe in the future, we can talk a little bit about the worker side of this, because I think there's a story on that side, too, that, that is, uh, that's important here. So, uh, so, Jean, thank you for having me. And, John, sincerely a pleasure. Our pleasure, Mimi. Tell our listeners how they can get in touch with you. Well, you can, uh, you can get us on any of our social channels, but the easiest one would be to just go to our website, www.lds.com, um, and you'll see we put out a lot of videos and thought leadership pieces, and we publish some ebooks. And so uh, this is a bit of a, uh, not only our work, it's kind of our passion. So, uh, so you'll find a lot out there, I'm sure. Absolutely. You're very generous with your thought leadership, and we appreciate that. Uh, this is The Work uh, podcast covering tough topics at work. Our guest has been Mimi Brooks. Mimi, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks again. Okay. Bye, John. Stay with us for a moment so we can see the dog. <laughs> okay. <laughs>